invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12, continuing in our series. And, and this message and the next couple are, are going to be in these few verses in Romans 12, 8 through 21. And it's a series of statements, one after another, that Paul makes. And so these messages are going to be a little bit different and um, just kind of praying through how to to go through this and it feels like I'll just take them statements at a time and maybe spend some time on more uh, on one than than on another um, but it starts off with this this phrase let your love be genuine and in English we have a word for love it's only one word love we use it for all kinds of things we can love ice cream we can love people we can love all kinds of different things, but the same word, but it just means different things. Somebody who's been, a couple that's been married for 50 years, 60 years, says, I love you, and, and that means way different than, right, I love this cool little toy I got. Like, there's all kinds of meanings to the word love, even though we use that word so much. In the Greek language, they had four main words for love. They, they kind of separated them out to make things clear, and there was agape love, which is this unconditional love. There was phileo love, which is a, a brotherly, sisterly love. There is eros love, which is the erotic love. And then there's this storge, storge, however you want to say it, uh, love, which is parent to child love. And they had four different categories. They had a couple more, but those were their main ones. And when, when you come to this verse here in Romans 12, where it says, let love be genuine it's important to understand what love are we talking about there and and it's the word agape agape love has occurred this would be the eighth time it's occurred in the book of romans and every time it has occurred except for one so out of the eight seven of them is god's love for us god's love for us god's love for us god's love. and then there's one moment where it says our love for god and every time it's agape Agape, agape, agape. So it's God's unconditional love, God's unconditional love over and over and over again. And then one time it's our response back and agape love to him. And then it comes to here and, and, and we see this let love, let agape love be genuine. And it seems as if what Paul is doing is here is he's starting off a new section and the theme of that section is agape love and, and what that would look like. Let your love, your agape love, let agape love be genuine. You can't fake love. I mean, you can pretend to love, but over time it becomes very apparent when somebody is not loving, especially when you're talking about agape, which is unconditional love. It's not something that we create. Paul makes it really clear that God has poured out his love, he says this earlier in Romans, his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So God, and, and I don't know if you remember that passage we talked about us being this little tiny cup and, and God and all his immensity pouring love into this like this cosmic picture picture of love like it's impossible for us to hold all his love and yet he pours it into us 
We don't create it. We don't manufacture it somehow. It is just given to us through God. Poured out, dumped into. Genuine. Do you ever sit back and wonder sometimes what you would be like, what I would be like, if we actually lived in that place where God's love really was everything to us. Like we live there knowing his love was poured out into our hearts, therefore, well, nothing else really matters. I can love someone who hates me. I can love someone who doesn't give anything back. I can love without feeling insecure. I can, I can pretty much just walk around knowing God loves me. I'm okay. Like, have you ever really thought about that and gone and just thought, I wonder what I would be like if I truly just lived like that? What if I truly just lived like God loved me? Like, Would you be different? Would you be as angry or frustrated? Would I be anxious, fearful? His love, God is love, arguably could be the most powerful thing in the universe. I don't know. He says, let your love be genuine, or let this love be genuine. And what does that look like? To have genuine love. How different would it be? He says that, and then I think what happens is the next verses are about what that genuine love might look like. Abhor evil. Hold fast to what is good. Genuine love abhors evil. Holds fast to good. When we stop living in genuine love, we start to hold on to evil and we start to avoid what is good. Start to hold on to lies. Start to hold on to deception, start to hold on to things that are temporal, start to hold on to whatever, and we start to avoid uh, things that are good, and we can get to the end of a day, our, our head hits the pillow, and we look back on the day, and we go, what was that about? Abhor is this idea of you, you shudder at something, like, ugh. Like, your initial reaction is, ugh. This is so funny. Uh, yesterday, um, so I had the full goatee. I was all happy about it. I'm like, eh, I'm going to cut this thing. So I just, I shaved off the middle and created this wonderful handlebar mustache. Like, it was epic. And it was just incredible. And I walk out, and, and <laughs> my oldest, who will remain nameless, um, I think I could say this, um, her first reaction is, oh, when she saw me. That was it. Oh! 
And then it was, you got to shave that. Like, just, that's abhor. I mean, I, I felt it. That's abhorrence. Your first reaction is, oh! How, you know, it's one of those things. It's, um, it creeps up on us. Do we abhor evil in a culture where it is all around us? And how do you do that? When you can turn on, and it's not just like we're looking for it, it hunts us. Evil hunts us down. You can turn on the TV, you're not looking for anything, and all of a sudden something, and you're like, I, I wasn't looking for that. Right, get on the computer. Drive around. I, I don't know what it is. But can we get so used to seeing evil that it just becomes, yeah, that's evil. Instead of that, no, I don't want that. My wife and I were just trying to, you know, we like watching a, a TV show series together. We can't seem to find one. We started watching one. We were one episode in and like, nope. That one's not going to work. And started to watch another one. And about three episodes in, we're just like, no, it's just, it's just evil. It's just evil. Like, we, why? I think it's, it's telling. When you, you look at our culture, and, and one of the number, one of the greatest TV shows that's ever been out there is called Game of Thrones. And you look at it, and the essence of Game of Thrones is pure evil. It just is. That show is just filled with pure evil. And that's our culture. It wins all kinds of awards. It's, it's nothing but pure evil. And, and it's, I, I, there's a piece of this where someone who is immersed in the love, the agape love of God, encounters evil and they go, oh, no, I can't, no but holds on to what is good. And then it begs, well, what can I look at? Well, exactly. What do you watch? Not much out there. I don't know. All I know is this agape love gets in us and it leads us to abhor evil. Goes on and he says this. He says, love one another with brotherly affection which is, affection is actually this word for phileo. So love, or love is the phileo love. So love one another, phileo one another with brotherly affection. So this is brotherly love with brotherly love, or sisterly love with sisterly love. It, it, it's, he, he's saying in the body of Christ, what happens is his love pours into us and we start to look at each other as now brothers and sisters and, and we start to love each other that way. It changes how we look at people in God's family. We start to love them like a brother, like a sister. People we don't even know. It expands and expands. And, and over time, we should find ourselves being able to love deeper and love broader. And if you struggle to love people within the family, God's own family, 
I think the invitation is come and discover the agape love of God. Because it's there that this kind of love starts to emerge. He goes on and he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Which I think is interesting. I, I, I think Paul was very competitive, highly competitive, highly driven guy. And it's interesting because he says if often what happens is, is the inverse of that. What, what do we do? We compete for honor, right? That's what we're wired to do. We're, we compete for glory. We compete for fame. And, and Paul says something fascinating. He turns it upside down. He says, look, if you guys want to compete, if you're driven and, and you, you got to be about winning at something, then win at this. Win at outdoing everyone else and, and giving honor to others. Which you're like, yeah, but that means I'd never get a trophy for it. They would always get the, Right? I would never get any honor then because even if I won, nobody would know about it because in winning, I'm actually letting somebody else get the honor. I'm like, that's the competition piece. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing. When you come into the family of God, what God says is, I want you to be someone that pulls others up and sees others get honored. When I was in Missoula, I was a worship pastor there for four years, and I would help, you know, I'd be planning the worship services, and so I'd be talking to the senior pastor, Jeff, quite a bit, and we'd be working on, you know, what the service is going to be like, and then sometimes, you know, we'd talk about his message, and, and often I would throw him quotes or, you know, stories, things like that. He didn't need my help. I mean, he is a great preacher, um, but every once in a while I'd throw him stuff, and he would use it. And he would use it on Sunday morning, and I'd hear him use that stuff, and then he wouldn't give me credit. And I'm like, it really bugged me. It was a thing. And I'm like, what is that? Like, what? And don't you ever, you ever have those moments where, like, you want to talk about it, but you know you can't, because if you do, it makes you look really bad, but you still want to talk about it? Because it's like, well, that's, that's uh, me. Like, where's the credit? And it, it really revealed to me my, what is that about me? Why do I need to be credited for that? And it's just an illustration. You're just helping the body out. Like, what is that, Scott? I've never told anybody this. This is all, like, I probably shouldn't have at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. And, and what started to happen over time is, I was getting into these positions where other people were helping me and the worship ministry was going and growing and it was great. And then I got here and people were helping me and things were growing and I was getting a lot of credit and a lot of honor and, and I wasn't able to, I just wasn't able to mention every person every time something happened and the shoe was on the other foot. And I'm like, oh, oh, I see how this goes. It's, it's much harder, and it, it, what I found interesting is it's harder to take credit and harder to receive the honor when I know that it's come on the sacrifice and service of others. Does that make sense? 
after a while, it's like, yeah, thank you for that, but I got a list of people here that have made this what it is. And it, it's funny, because now I'm like, I understand why Jeff did it, and, you know, it's, it's one of these things, even this, you want to talk about funny, I wrote this, and I wrote this little confession, and then wouldn't you know it, uh, Jake comes in and he gives me an illustration that I used at the worship night, and I didn't give him credit, and I'm like, oh my goodness, he gave me two, I mean, he really actually, he made the worship night what it really was, I was like, I don't really think I did much at all except just stand up and tell, say everything that Jake told me to say. And, um, I think it's, it's someone who is immersed in the love of God gets a charge out of seeing others honored. They just do. They're not threatened. See, the, the world says there's only so much glory to go around. There's only so much honor to go around. And so if somebody's got glory and honor, then it's most likely yours. And you need to go take it from them. And Christ says, no, I love you. That's enough. I love you. Like, I love you. What, you, what do you go chase after that stuff for? Who cares? And he has this vision of what it's like to be in a church. And, and to be in a church family. And, and it's this model to this world where a church family is filled with people that love to see others soar. And so rather than the leadership holding on to all the gifts and all the glory and all this, it's, no, the leadership is called to see others soar and thrive. And to see others who are better at things take off and get the honor, and get the glory. And, and that's what I, there's a, there's a theme as you look at the leadership in here, you look at Pastor Sean, and Lynn, and Beth, and Bob, and Jake, and you look at the elders, and you look at the women's ministry, there is this drive, you look in, in the children's, there's this drive to see others trained up, and excel, and rise up. Because it, when we start competing that way, the body of Christ soars. There's so much honor to go around. There's far more honor than anybody realizes, and it's God-driven honor. It's so fun to see someone soar. It is. I, I don't, for me, it's, just, it's a blast when I see others take a gift and just do it way better than even me. It's good. Sean gets up here. He preaches. Sean starts organizing stuff. I try to organize it, and it's just ugly. It's just awful. And Sean can take something and just go, and then it's just like, done. I'm like, how did you do that? There was a miracle. You ever have Lynn? You ever hang around Lynn? I love it when Lynn starts to riff, spiritually speaking. Like, you ask Lynn to speak off the top of his head about something spiritual, and he just goes. He goes in a direct, I'm like, how did you do that? And he starts doing this thing, and I don't know if you have, Lynn does this a lot. He drops things in, like with his hand. He's already 6'10", and he's like 12 foot, and he's got his hand, and, I'm, and amazing gift. 
good. If you like to compete, compete in building others up. Compete in seeing others soar under your influence and relationship. Do you do that? When's the last time you've really tried to pull someone up, affirm them, not talk about yourself, but affirm them. Watch them walk away. Set them into a place where they get in their sweet spot and they soar and everybody's around going, oh my, how, how, did, how did that, where did that, that's amazing. And you see people come up to them and affirm them. If you want to compete, if you're all about that, you're so competitive, go for it. Win at that. Crush everyone else. I dare you. Just crush them. Giving honor to others. It says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Seems like these uh, go together. Slothful in zeal. Serve the Lord, fervent in spirit. And slothful is our translation of this, this word. Sloth is, is slothful is obviously we get this image of a, of a sloth who doesn't move. Or if he does, he moves very slowly. Um, just hangs around. Does nothing. Right? I mean, that's, he's saying don't be slothful in your passion. It's a great picture. But be fervent. Fervent. It's a, it's a word related to fire. So don't, don't be inactive, immobile in your zeal, but be fervent. Be on fire in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, this is, this is hard to uh, put into words because everybody, this looks different in everybody and how everybody lives. And I used to be so excited and thought the people that were really like the raw, just out there all the time, that's what real passion looked like. That is what passion can look like. Fervent in the spirit can look like that as people serve the Lord. But that's not how it all looks. There's other people that are fervent in spirit, but you wouldn't see that expressiveness. It's deep. It's this resolve, consistency. It, it doesn't look the same. But there is a reality that our fervency in the spirit is something that we can have influence over. In fact, we're called to have it. And so it doesn't have to be this bonfire all the time, but if it's just coals and barely going, we got a problem. So there's this reality. It can be a fire that is burning consistently and maintaining through our life. Fervent in spirit. How is your fervency in your spirit today? this week, these months, this past year? Is it 
on fire or is it barely on fire? Is it like a sloth? You ain't really going anywhere, just kind of hanging around and moving real slow. I, I, I don't know. If, you're, if your passion for God is lacking, you're struggling in this, I, I want to say something, and I don't want to say it with uh, anger. I don't want to say it with uh, anything that's no edge to it. Um, so hear, hear my heart on this thing. Um, if, your, if your passion is at a zero, is at a one, or it's barely going, it's your fault. It's your fault. No one else is in charge of you. You're the only one that's in charge of you. If you think it's up to the church to keep your passion going, you're wrong. It's in your hands. Only you can guard that. Only you can tend to that. Can the church come alongside and help you? Well, yeah, for sure the church can. But you and I are in charge of our own fire. Nobody else is in charge of your fire, your fervency. The church will never be enough. The youth ministry, children's ministry will never be enough. I, there is no one in this room that can make someone else passionate. Only God does that because God is the God of fire. He has some fire, and only he can stir heart fires, spirit fires. We can come alongside, and we can agree, and we can pray, and we can help. But if, if in your heart that fire has died down, it's slothful, if you want to use that metaphor, what are you going to do about that? I don't know, students, if you're headed to life, are you praying about that and what God may do there? Have you ever thought about that? Like, you're in charge of that. If you're 13 or 14 years old, mom and dad can't do this for you. They just can't. You're in charge of you now. You're coming into adulthood. You're coming into womanhood, manhood. It is on you, your spiritual fervor, fervency, that flame. That's you. They've raised you as far as they can, but there's a point now you're making the decision about what you want to do in here. We can't do it for you. If you are struggling and you're saying, yeah, my, I'm just not there, my heart's not there, you can ask God, give me your fire. Light me on fire. Start fasting for it. Start asking for it. Don't quit. There's this story of this widow 
not even part of the Jewish nation coming to ask for help from Jesus. And Jesus is like, why should I give that to you? And, and she just keeps persisting, and, and it's her persistence. There's this, it was an illustration of persistence, and that someone who's coming to God, who is his child, is asking and persisting and asking for that which God loves to give, God is going to give it. I would encourage you, start asking. Start asking for fire. Start asking for passion. You don't even have to know how it happens. Just start saying, God, I want this. Light me on fire. One final thought he says here, and I, I think it's, I'm going to close with this. He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And, and as I was reading through this and it ta- just looking at some commentaries, it seems like these three go together. It's a triplet. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And, and the theme is tribulation and, and why would you need hope except that you're in tribulation? Why would you be constantly in prayer except that you're in tribulation? It's, it's kind of the logic of how they all came together. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Tribulation is, assu- is assumed here. It, it's not like if tribulation, you might not have this happen. It's, tribulation is just assumed. It says rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation because it's going to come. You know, one of our favorite verses the church quotes is Jeremiah 29.11. Everybody know that verse, right? For I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, right? Does anybody know the verse right before that? Can anybody quote the verse right before it? Jeremiah 29.10. There's a reason God wrote Jeremiah 29.11. Is because he just gave him 29.10. 29.10 says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. What's going on there is Israel is in captivity. The nation as a whole is destroyed. The people are spread, it's out, scattered. Many of them were taken into captivity. God comes to them through the prophet Jeremiah and says, I'm doing something with with Babylon for 70 years here. You're going to stay in captivity. But I got plans for you. I got 70 years of tribulation you're going to be walking through here, but I got plans for you. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And if you read the first nine verses of Jeremiah 9, what does God say? He says, I have a vision for you in this tribulation to thrive. That's what his vision is. If you read Jeremiah 29, it's a vision. I want you to plant. I want you to grow crops. I want you to build homes. I want you to have families. I want you to thrive in tribulation. You can do it.
And we talk about patience. 70 years. Many of them would never see that happen. I want you to be patient in tribulation. I want you to rejoice in hope. Hope that you may not see while you're alive, but rejoice in hope. Hope, right, is the things that we can't see, right? Or faith is the hope. I just butchered that verse. Sorry. You get it. And I'm not here to say that you're going through a tribulation trial that is going to last 70 years. But God has a vision for your life and for our, my life, right? In tribulation, we can thrive. We can. We can thrive. We can rejoice in hope. There's always hope in Christ. We can be patient in tribulation. I am not a big fan of that. I hate tribulation. I'm impatient. I want it over now. I hate it. Anybody else? Like, who loves to be in tribulation? Patient? And then it makes sense constantly in prayer. Oh, I get that. Praying. God has a vision for us of our lives in this. Let's pray. As we're praying, I just got this picture this past week. I just want to share. I don't know if it's of God. It's just even as we're praying here. It was a picture of God holding somebody from behind and the person was in his arms fighting, wrestling. They're struggling to get out of his embrace. And it was wrestling with the fact that they're in tribulation right now. Kicking and screaming against his embrace of holding them. I don't know if that's you. I don't know. I just sense that I'm supposed to share that. Holy Spirit, would you... Do the work that you do. Seal these words. Minister to us, God. Lead us. Hmm. Amen.